Welcome to the Guardian Podcast with Ren Melberg. My name is Harold Nickel. Now, Ren talks a lot on the show about science. The impact of scientific research often contradicts what we have all been taught or think that we know. And as confounding as that is for anyone who's listened to the podcast knows that this kind of thing comes up all the time. So this week, Ren is going to dig deeper into the whole science versus reality topic and will cite a very well-known writer, a man named Daniel Pink. Daniel Pink is a best-selling New York Times author who writes about work, business, and human behavior. Now, Pink advocates the use of scientific knowledge to both work smarter and live better. He is known for pointing out the mismatch between what happens at work and what science states is the better way to motivate employees or even yourself. And Ren, first tell us, how did you come to know about Daniel Pink and how his work got your attention? So I think he really started to get well-known, I think, around 2008-ish, I'm going to say, um, with uh, some early publishings that became his book, Drive, uh, which is, I think, his first bestseller, mm-hmm. if not his best bestseller. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, and really what he did in this really very accessible way is take all the scientific knowledge that's been out there for a very long time. What Daniel Pink talks about and what we'll talk about today is stuff that's been known for a very long time, mm-hmm. meaning at least the 1940s, and there's some um, studies going back into the mid and late 1800s, so mm-hmm. a very long time. But what he did is he synthesized it, put it in a modern context, and presented it in common language. Okay. So it's accessible. That's one of the things that I think has been a challenge um, for using science in business is how little of it is presented in a way that's accessible, um, which is kind of why we have this podcast. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. And why I do the work I do because I try and take all of this and scientific knowledge about business and about people and present it in a way that's accessible and that people can use it. And that's what Daniel Pink did. And he, and he, you know, if you read the book, I mean, it, there's citations all over the place mm-hmm. um, for all this work that was done by all these other people. When he really became known, though, was when he did a TED Talk in 2009. And he did in a very short period of time, I think it's like 10, 12 minutes, um, presented his book in all this research and really kind of blew people's minds. Mm-hmm. But what's fascinating is about a year later, a company called RSA animated his TED talk and it exploded. Huh. And then it was like everybody knew because that combination of the visual with, and they used the um, audio from his TED talk. Mm-hmm. They just animated it. So if you haven't seen it, Daniel Pink, RSA, YouTube. Okay. Um, <laughs> Take a look. It is an amazing animation. <clears throat> but so it, it was really, in part of what's kind of interesting, I think, that made it take, it, take off really with the animation. 
um, and go mainstream is that when you think about when his book came out, it was during a financial crisis. Mm-hmm. And even in 2009, when he initially did the TED Talk, people were still really um, reeling and recovering from that. Sure. Um, when the RSA animation came out, it, they do brilliant animation first of all. Mm-hmm. But I think people were also really um, open to it. So it was great timing. When we talk about safe, it was perfect timing because <laughs> literally the early research had been done and the scaled agile framework was about to be published when uh, Daniel Pink's research in his initial TED talk came out. Mm-hmm. And it was just this perfect marriage of this is exactly what we've been trying to talk about and motivating knowledge workers. Yeah, that's um, that's interesting. And, you know, for me, I could sit and watch TED Talks all day long, but um, it, that's not an option for me, at least, um, at least not yet. But <laughs> there's lots of people who write and, and speak for a living about, you know, how to work better and how to get ahead at work, and how to inspire employees, and how to motivate yourself. What's the overall difference with Daniel Pink's approach versus everybody else? I think uh, uh, there's a couple of things. One is that Daniel Pink's work does what the science does, and it makes a distinction between labor and knowledge work. Mm -hmm. And that those are behaviors that are motivated differently mm-hmm. and should be motivated differently because you're going to get different results. And he talk, and Daniel Pink talks about that a little bit and then really dives into knowledge workers and how they are motivated and inspired very differently. And most of what we see as far as how you manage people or how you lead people is is still that industrial model. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of what we talk about here. The industrial model does not work in the knowledge industry. So if you're building software or you're doing anything that requires work from the frontal cortex, mm-hmm. right? That's the right. front part of your brain. Um those are that's knowledge work. Yep. That's not industrial work. And so the mechanics of it are very different. And I think a lot of people, especially in the agile industry, because they're really the ones who've picked up Daniel Pink's work and run with it, Mm -hmm. um, that what he was talking about resonated. People went, yeah, that's true for me. Yeah. And then looked around the room and found out everybody else was nodding their heads too and saying to themselves, that's true for me. So... I mean, I remember the first time I heard him speak, and you literally had thousands of people going, yeah, that's me. That's Mm -hmm. what what he's talking about, motivations of a knowledge worker. That's me. You can't throw money at me. That's not going to work to help me solve a problem. More hours I work in a day doesn't help solve problems, right? Right. Yeah, it's um, interesting because you've talked before about the difference in measuring uh, knowledge work with an industrial measuring stick. So let's... let's Which is usually hours or widgets, like lines of code. Yeah, 
Yeah. I can't tell you how many companies I've worked at, some very well-known uh, software houses, and they're measuring lines of code. And I'm yeah. like, who gives a crap? <laughs> <laughs> and actually, more code causes more problems and more opportunities for bugs. That's why you need elegant code, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> Being precise and concise in your code writing so that it's more effective and you reduce the opportunities for bugs and errors and loops and all this other stuff. Paying people by the word <laughs> oh, absolutely. rarely gets you Moby Dick. <laughs> Let's just be honest. No, no, it gets you uh, a, a comic <laughs> book with a lot of typos. So, uh, right, it's just it's just not not a good way of of measuring knowledge work. Right. So, so let's let's uh, scratch a little harder on that topic because one of the things I read about Daniel uh, Daniel Pink was this whole carrot and stick motivation that that as you just said that that's not the way to manage the 21st century worker and that he had scientific evidence to prove the point. So, you know, if measuring lines of code and, um, you know, piecework counts, if that's the wrong way to do things, what's the right way? And this is what's kind of interesting. The right way, um, there's a, there's a, few things you need to do. All of them scare the crap out of traditional industrial model leaders. Mm -hmm. So the first one is purpose. Mm. And we see this um, is huge. When um, people are interviewing knowledge workers, are being interviewed for a job, mm -hmm. you will see them at some point turn it around and they start interviewing the interviewer. Uh-huh, yeah. Because this is a group of people who aren't interested in just working for anyone. Right. They want to go to work for a purpose, a reason. They're motivated by the problems that are being solved. They really believe in the company's mission and what the company is trying to do. You know, there's something, some purpose. Mm -hmm. In the industrial model, the only purpose is profit. Yeah, that's right. Well, that doesn't motivate most human beings. Most human beings, profit only gets you so far. Like, study after study, and again, this is some of the stuff that goes back into the 1800s. Mm -hmm. We know that most people, the vast majority of human beings and the 90%, want to make enough money and have enough money to have financial security, mm -hmm. and then they're fine. They're not motivated to become billionaires or millionaires, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. And actually, there's a whole scientific study, psychology, around why those people, which is usually about 1% to 2% of the total population, what motivates them. And it's usually some um, uh, dysfunctional behavior in their family that creates a particular psychosis. Mm, great. <laughs> Which from from a lot of people they kind of they probably just heard me say that and went oh that explains a lot well it does yes <laughs> um, and we saw this every once in a while there's a there's a cycle where all of a sudden we see all this more research done on narcissistic and antisocial 
personalities mm-hmm. and how many of those people become millionaires and billionaires and, you know, C-suite folks, etc. cetera. Right. Mm-hmm. But for most of us, we just need our financial security needs met, and then that's it. And so purpose becomes why we go to work. The challenge, one of the biggest motivators, and I know this is huge for me, and I we've t- we've talked about here, so I know it's huge for you, mm-hmm. autonomy. Oh, yeah. Allowing me to do my work when and how I know how best to do it. Don't micromanage me. Mm-hmm. And for most people these days, don't even make me come into the office. That's Trust right. me that I know when I need to be in the office and when not. Trust me to know when I need to be working and when not. Because if I have an idea at 10 o'clock at night, I want to be able to log in and, and work on it. Mm-hmm. You know, autonomy is huge for this for this group of people, too. Right. But you think of the industrial model, which is all about command and control, and you have to be on the assembly line at this point because if you aren't, then you're going to screw up the assembly process and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. That is really hard for those traditional leaders um, to, you know, be able to manage these knowledge workers who want something as incredibly important as um autonomy yeah that's uh that's so well said and and really you know defines the the modern worker the modern knowledge worker um the way to motivate people what i saw daniel pink wrote it was to reward the behavior you want or punish what you don't want that that's the old way of doing right. things and but this is kind of the way I train my dog, right? Um, <laughs> so when it comes to employees, what I'm hearing is that this doesn't necessarily work. It does not work with employees. Is that right? Correct. And, and it'll work in the short term, which is why leaders have a tendency to go back to it over and over again. Mm-hmm. is because they'll see a short-term benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, but long-term, it doesn't work. And what's kind of entertaining as a consultant, mm-hmm. but very frustrating if you're the manager, is that behavior, that carrot and stick behavior, actually um, whittles away and degrades the relationship between the manager and their knowledge worker or mm-hmm. workers. And they lose trust, and the knowledge worker loses their sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. And they either check out or they leave. Either way, they're gone, right? right? <laughs> is it just <laughs> mentally or is it mentally and physically? But um, you it, you no longer get um, even hard work out of that person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And that's even if you give them more money. Um, so it's all about the carrots, what we find is that that actually reduces the performance of knowledge workers over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that uh, that makes sense. And along those lines, you know, creative creative problem solving is something right out of the 
the agile way of doing things. And Pink has lots of good reasons to advocate a more creative approach to work. Mm-hmm. But with my old school hat on, is is allowing an individual to use their own good judgment, is that the best way to manage or not? Most of the time it is. So this is one of the things that I, I find when I'm consulting and comes back to is a, a, a leader's willingness to allow their employees to use their own judgment. Mm-hmm is in direct proportion to that leader's belief in their own ability to hire good people. Huh, okay. So if they don't believe that they know how to hire good people, they're going to manage more than they will lead. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've, we've talked about the difference between managing and leading. We've kind of hit on it here too, right? Right. I'm not going to manage you. I'm going to tell you how to do your work and I'm going to say who has to do the work and I'm going to assign the work and all that. If I lead, I'm going to say, hey guys, this is what needs to be done. And I'm going to let these people, and I'm from the Midwest, so guys is genderless. Sure, yeah. Um, Hey people, (laughs) right? (laughs) Um, Here's what needs to be done and this is kind of when I need it, go do it. Right. 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 And a lot of the work that I've done, and I, you know, I do a considerable amount of executive coaching, is um, helping them hire better people, but also helping them feel more com- confident about their ability to hire knowledge workers. Mm-hmm. So when those people come into their organization and the people that they have are in their organization, they can trust themselves mm-hmm. to deal with whatever happens. And, and I'm sure there's some people who've been in marriage counseling who just went, Rin, that sounds a lot like what my marriage counselor said about my marriage. It is related. Mm-hmm. Trust is based on what what we believe our worst fears are and whether or not we think we can handle it. Wow. So when the crap hits the fan, yeah, what crap hits the fan, and do we believe we can handle it? Wow. Right, and we bring that same thing into work that we bring it into any of our interpersonal relationships, and that same fear of being burned, being wrong, and can I handle it? Right, so. <clears throat> Someone, I, uh, a CIO that I coached a couple of years ago, he had hired this absolutely brilliant architect, but who was fiercely independent, mm-hmm. wasn't always reliable about uh, meeting deadlines, mm-hmm. um, but did some of the best work you, you'll ever see, especially around... Um, content and data management through a large system of systems. Mm-hmm. And a lot of technologists went, oh my God, that is so hard. Yes, it is. It's some of the hardest work we do right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was brilliant at it. The CIO was always trying to micromanage him mm-hmm. because he was afraid that the architect's meeting deadlines would reflect poorly on him as a CIO, mm-hmm. and that the CIO's job would be at risk. Yeah, I can imagine. And, 
Right. And what do we wind up doing when we have a fear like that? We wind up manifesting it. We wind up creating the situations that create our fear and make it real. And that's Mm -hmm. exactly what he was doing. So he's micromanaging this knowledge worker, which demotivates. So his work started to slip, the quality, and he missed even more deadlines. So I had to coach him to pull back and start repairing the relationship, rebuild the trust, and all of a sudden the work started to get better, and he started to make debt, you know, due dates. Yeah, it is that that fear became self fulfilling, I guess. Um, most of our fears will. It's <laughs> uh, one of the things that human beings are exceptionally good at. <laughs> great, great. My fear of bears. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna have to lock the doors. Um, you know, thank God we're not as good at manifesting that way. It's more oh. like our our relationship and our interpersonal fears. Those things uh, are really good at then creating. I gotcha. I gotcha. Okay, so everybody's had employees that you know we just didn't like, and we mm-hmm. just didn't like or trust, and you know those opinions were based on our experience with them. So will this approach work with, and I can't think of a nicer way to say it, substandard workers? Well, part of it in what I coach leaders to do is first take a check on their own behavior because you can't change the behavior of other people. Right. You just can't. You can only change your own behavior. Mm-hmm. So in the example I just gave you with the CIO, I had him change his behavior. And then he started to get the results he actually wanted mm-hmm. instead of the ones he feared, right? And so that's really where a lot of this leadership comes from is it's changing your own behavior and seeing if that gets us to the results we want. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, um, acknowledging that not everyone is the right fit for the role they're in. That doesn't make them a bad person. Right. Okay. And maybe that's what we need to acknowledge. They're in the wrong role. Is mm-hmm. there a better role in the organization for that person? If so, so, then let's be smart and humane about this and move them into it. It's actually better economics. By the way, it's very expensive letting people go. Oh, yeah. Um, It's not always acknowledged, but it is expensive. And it's not just expensive in the hard costs of the severance and the extra unemployment insurance and all this crap you have to pay, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. But also in the impact to the organization. The more compassionate you are to someone who's struggling, the more you validate that sense of purpose for the people around them. Hmm. The more inhumane we are and lacking compassion, the more we take away from that sense of purpose and demotivate the people around them. So we tell executives, treat everyone in the organization exactly how you would want to be treated in that situation. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, as I mean, the word you used, humane, um, and there are a lot of maybe costs that you can't assign to the bottom line, but 
psychic costs like what you've just described. So, Especially when we're talking about motivation, mm -hmm. that's really what we need to be talking about. And this is one of the reasons why I always kind of bring sales into some of these conversations because sales people always tell you 80% of the decisions are based on emotion. Mm -hmm. that's Guess right. what? That doesn't change just in our buying decisions. And every day at work is a buying decision. Mm -hmm. We choose whether or not we show up. That's right. And we choose, so whether or not we're going to buy that job, we also choose how much we're going to invest that day and you gotta right. ask yourself as a leader first do you want your knowledge workers to choose to come work for you every day by you every day and if so how much do you want them to buy for pay for you do you want to always be in the bargain bin mm, no and they're going to mm. give you the least amount possible or do you want them to see you worth investing extra mm-hmm of course you want extra. Sure. And you should. So what are you going to do to make it worth it for these knowledge workers to show up and give you their best performance? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so well said. Um, so I'm going to apologize up front because this is the longest question I've ever asked. Um, I, I read an interview with Pink where he cites the company Atlassian, and that's a company that works on agile tools. Right. And, and Jira. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, um, and how their software developers were allowed to spend one day every quarter working on what they wanted. And this one day of autonomy created a whole array of programs and products that otherwise never would have been created. So the approach works so well that Atlassian employees can now spend 20% of all their time working on whatever they want, or 20% is one day a week of every five-day week. Mm -hmm. But even among knowledge workers, this seems like it would require really extraordinary employees to be present from the start, don't you think? No, not at all. Because one of the things we learned from Pink is that every single knowledge worker has the uh, potential to, by definition, be creative and do extraordinary things. Okay. Um, and this is, there's a lot of research, and this is part of the autonomy um, that Daniel Pink talks about and others talk about, that is so necessary. Because you know what happened at Atlassian and some other companies, every company I've worked at that has done this. Mm -hmm. The knowledge workers go after the problems that are in the work environment that bug the crap out of them. Mm -hmm. What is every single executive I've ever presented this to and said, you have to do this, said to me, well, I don't want them in, you know, spending my time to create a, a you know, a new app or a video game. Right. Yeah. No, that's not. If you've got a sense of purpose in your work environment mm -hmm. and you're properly motivating your knowledge workers, they are automatically going to go to the pain points in your organization, the things that are bugging the crap out of them. Mm -hmm. And we have done this over and over and over again for almost 10 years now. And that has been the case every single time. I'll be darned. 
they first solve these problems that they've never had time or given been given permission to solve that have just been bugging them and it it's so hilarious you know because i always have to ask these c-sweet folks take a leap of faith with me (laughs) yeah trust me and if you don't like it we'll stop it okay and we do like in the scaled agile framework there's Mm -hmm. an innovation and planning sprint in every program increment Mm -hmm. so every fifth or sixth sprint is dedicated to innovation and planning and every single time the employees they get together they scrum together and they go all right you know what this defect has been bugging the crap out of me. I have to fix this. Or, you know, this is what's been keeping us from being able to automate this particular functionality. I want to fix this. Mm-hmm. Those are the things they literally go after. So, And the C-suite sits there and goes, Ren, you were right. Yeah. And that goes back to the trust thing that you were telling us about earlier. You're right. And it, and it's and I always wondered and I've never asked this so it may be apolitical and say it's out loud but there's always been a part of me that wonders if what the C-suite is really saying is if if they were given the opportunity to do anything they would go and play they would oh. do golf right oh. they wouldn't go after the things that are bugging them. But the most of the ones I know, I can say with confidence that's not the case. They mm-hmm. would be like, okay, I finally have time to fix this thing that's been annoying me. And it's like, well, why don't you believe that other people believe that that's what they're going to do too? Because I think about, like, how many of us have had staycations and there's always something we wound up doing around the house? Mm-hmm. That's just been bugging us and we didn't have time and it's like, I'm finally going to be able to do that project. Right. Right? Yeah. This, this is a universal aspect of human behavior that um, Pink and others do such a good job of, of highlighting that we have scientific evidence for this, that people are just inherently going to go after that thing when they're given a chance to innovate that has been bugging them the most. Right. Then the other thing that they're going to go after is some innovation or that what if. So you get those annoying things out of the, the way and, you know, by in in the safe model, by program increment three usually, mm-hmm. is when they start to go after, well, you know, it would be cool. Yeah, And it's always work-focused. It's always, you know, I've always kind of wondered what it would be like if we did this, right? And then you start to get that real creative innovation once they fixed all these things that have been annoying them for so long. Yeah, that's, I I could talk about, you know, this answer um, (laughs) a lot longer. And I love the part about, you know, that they're being worried about people going and playing was uh, sort of like the, the Rorschach inkblot test for them. Um, right. But it's a we got I like that. It's a great way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you. Thank you. But it is true because I've been in situations, um, you know, having been in the C-suite, so I've had intimate knowledge and, and been in that role, and I've been in situations where, for one reason or another, we had some extra time, and it was, what did we do? 
uh, you know, in the C-suite, we fix that thing that we've been wanting to do for a while. Huh. So why don't we trust our employees to do the same thing? Because guess That's... what they do? And the science proves it over and over and over and over again. So it kind of brings me, though, to an admitted bias that I that I have. Um, <laughs> if you've got really extraordinary people, and this is just my opinion, okay, it will not matter what kind of a system or approach there is because those people are going to excel in the workplace regardless. So how does Daniel Pink and his body of knowledge, how does this apply to to us average people? Well, first of all, your premise is, is incorrect. Okay. So the idea that if you have extraordinary people, no matter the system, they'll be successful. And we actually know that's not true. Um, the more extraordinary a person is and the less compatible the system is, the worse that person is going to be. So they're going to go to proportion. So the example I gave you of this exceptionally brilliant and actually well-known architect put into a system where he was being managed in the industrial model and he just sunk. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. So... And it was that, where if you had brought in someone who was uh, more average and put them in the same system, what you would have seen is they might have had a little bit of a performance degradation, but it wouldn't have been as dramatic. Okay. Okay. And that's why these systems are so important, because they're not about managing the best or the worst, it's actually like Daniel Pink's work is all about managing the 80% in the middle. Mm-hmm. What he also says is that's how you get those 80% in the middle to look a lot more like the extraordinary people and to behave a lot more like the extraordinary people and produce outcomes like those extraordinary people. Okay. Well, that that's an excellent way to, to look at it. But let's Take the opposite, um, mm-hmm. that in all cases, command and control or the carrot and the stick approach, that that just squashes um, or even destroys creativity. What's the best or what kind of framework allows creativity to be leveraged in practical ways? So, not because I'm biased, but really... The only system that we have right now, the only methodology that we have right now to help, you know, create this system where knowledge workers can be creative and successful really is the agile frameworks. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they were specifically designed to do that. Mm-hmm. So we talk a lot about the um, outcomes being, you know, higher quality, faster time to market, things like that. But if we trace it back to its origins, Agile was really about creating an environment in which these knowledge workers could do their best work. Mm-hmm. And when they did their best work, what we got was innovation, creativity, faster time to market, higher mm-hmm. quality. Right? Right. But what people associate Agile with is the 
result at the end, the outcomes, instead of what the, the real purpose of it is. So when we look at things like um, the Scaled Agile Framework, they're explicit, right? It's uh-huh. in their principles saying, we do this <laughs> to uh-huh. foster and create the best environment possible for knowledge workers. Okay. X-Peace is explicit. and <laughs> says, we do this for knowledge workers, right? Most uh-huh. of the other umbrella Agile stuff doesn't, and the Agile Manifesto doesn't either, not explicitly. But if you peel back just one layer of each of the items on the manifesto, what you see are the things that Daniel Pink and other scientists have have said are necessary for knowledge workers to be successful. Okay. The traditional methodologies like project management and RUP and some of the others actually have all those constraints and they're, the purpose is the project, which is pretty short-lived. I mean, you, you think most projects are 18 months. That's a pretty short-lived purpose. Right. Most of us are not going to sign up and get really excited about a short-lived purpose. Right? No, that's <laughs> right. You know, um, and there's all those traditional constraints and the command and control behaviors and things like that. Mm-hmm. Now, I say this, too, because, yes, Agile was designed to do this. It's been successful at helping knowledge workers do their best work. Mm-hmm. You know, Atlant- Atlantean, Atlantean, I, Jesus, I'm having a hard time saying that, but. Atlassian. Thank it's you. not easy to say, yeah. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Oh, I'm sorry, guys. Um, that is an agile house, and they're unabashed about it, right? Mm-hmm. That's what we That's do. Right. Um, you know, Google, Apple, Amazon. I mean, there's an incredible long list, American Express, blah, blah, blah long list of companies right. that are agile houses, and that's what they're using. All of those are knowledge worker industries, every single one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would be lost. They would be nothing without their knowledge workers, and they know that. But I want to leave the door open that agile may not be the end-all, be-all. It's what we have today. Uh-huh. And somebody may come along and come up with something that's even more effective for knowledge workers. Who knows? Indeed. Who who knows? But even knowing all this and with that said, it, it's the change that's needed in the world of work here and it, everywhere else around the world. It's mm-hmm. it was never more obvious than it was than it was today. And, you know, as always, Ren, you've exposed me and everybody else listening to, to these new, if not just downright revolutionary ways of approaching the world of work. And, um, I'm, I'm grateful to have learned it. And I'm sure the people listening are as well. And for those of you listening, if you want to be in touch and keep up with all of the latest from Ren, you can be sure to find it at her website, and it's www.renmelberg.com. Go there, and you can see uh, write-ups regarding 
the podcasts and different pieces of news about governance and agile and the world of work. Be sure to come back next week for another edition of The Guardian Podcast with Ren Melberg.